In this podcast, we look at the ideas of the late 19th century, which I call anti-rational ideas on the eve of the First World War. There are many theorists or philosophers or scientists we could study, but we're going to look at just four very briefly. Those four are Sigmund Freud, Marie Curie, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Albert Einstein. Now, the dominant point of view during this period, from about 1880 to 1914, was a rejection of the hypothesis that had been the consensus view since the 17th century. Since the 17th century, everyone believed that Isaac Newton was the last word on the universe. That is, Newton said there were laws of nature that were fixed, always the same in every context, and that you could take that to the bank. In other words, the world operated according to sensible laws that could be mathematically quantified. But after 1880, scientists began to discover weird things about the universe and about psychology and even philosophy, and they did not comport or fit the Newtonian worldview. And this led people to think that the world is really an irrational place, not in a good way as the Romantics had thought, but in a frightening way. Uh, Humans did not seem to be the potential masters of their fate. And this created a sense of uneasiness and anxiety, a sense that brute force ruled the world, which was the attitude Europeans took going into the First World War. In fact, it was an attitude that helped to lead to the First World War. But let's start with Sigmund Freud. We're only going to spend about a minute on each of these individuals until we get to Einstein, and we'll spend most of the time talking about his theory just because we want to have a case study of one of these people, and I've chosen Einstein. Now, Sigmund Freud represents this view of the irrational very well because Freud said that human beings do not know why they do the things that they do. They do these things because of conflicts that are in their unconscious mind. By definition, they don't know the reasons for why they do what they do. Freud said that there are three parts to the human mind, the id, the ego, and the superego. The id being the animal instincts that humans have, the ego being a desire to feed those animal instincts, and the superego being society's guardrails preventing humans from satisfying their animal instincts in every given situation. Because unless you have a superego to put the brakes on the id and to put the brakes on the ego feeding the id, 
then you're going to have chaos and you cannot possibly have a civilized society. Now, what Freud said is that the reason people get mentally ill is because the superego operates too severely on the ego and people have repressed desires, which creates conflicts in their mind and eventually leads to mental illness. And so Freud said in order to cure mental illness, you had to put someone on the couch and you had to get them to find out by stream of consciousness raising when this type of repression occurred. And once you became aware of it, then you could overcome it. But you see how Freud believes that humans are inherently aggressive. And it's only social learning that tames the wild spirit in human beings. And so uh, the notion that we can't know why we do what we do is also a kind of irrational concept that feeds into the view that the world is not what Isaac Newton said it was. It was not a controlled place. Now, Marie Curie discovered x-rays. Now, the only thing I want to say about that is that x-rays prove that atoms are not indestructible. They are not the lowest or the smallest form of existence. Atoms can be pierced, which is what x-rays do, so that you can see what's behind the skin. And therefore, uh, the notion that atoms could be split or pierced uh, was just another dethronement, as I put it, of Isaac Newton. Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, also argued that humans are basically brute animals. Humans uh, are motivated by one thing and one thing only, the will to power. There's an aggressive instinct in humans. That sounds like Freud. But it also sounds like Darwin, because Nietzsche is arguing that humans are basically brute animals and that they're not guided by their reason, but rather their animal instincts. And what Nietzsche said is that since humans cannot control the will to power, this is something that's all-consuming, then, then the only way to have a decent society is for the strongest human to come out on top and act as some kind of superman, ordering around the herd, the masses of people who are like dumb animals. Uh, Nietzsche said, I didn't invent the rules of the game, but this is the way humans are. So the only way to progress is to have some superman ruling over the masses without their consent, because most people are just irrational beasts, and at least the superman has greater intelligence and a greater chance to lead the herd to some kind of progress. But this is a dark point of view itself, another example of people dethroning Newton and leading the way to an irrational view of the world. And now we come to the fourth individual who had the same effect on his times, Albert Einstein.
Now I'm going to try to explain Einstein's theory of special relativity, which he discovered in 1905, in the simplest possible terms. Wish me luck, because that's not easy to do. The theory of special relativity argues that light would travel at the same speed relative to two individuals, regardless of their states of motion in relation to each other. For example, have you ever noticed that whether you're moving or you're standing still, if you are moving at a constant velocity, such as in a car, you can do things in the car that you could do if you were standing still, such as throw a ball up in the air, and if you do that, the ball is going to go straight up and it's going to fall straight down. The reason is because the ball is moving at the rate of the speed of the car, just like you are. As long as the velocity is constant, things don't change whether you're moving or standing still. Now, when you talk about relationships between an observer who's standing still and a person who is moving at a constant velocity, things get a little bit different. If, for example, you have two individuals, one who is standing still and one who is moving at a relatively high rate of speed in a constant velocity, then you have a situation where you have an interesting effect. We know that light travels at a constant speed no matter what is going on around it. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So if the rocket ship is moving at a certain speed away from the source of the light, in theory you would have a situation where the person on the rocket ship is going to have to wait longer for the light beam to reach him than for the person on the ground. In one sense, that's true. However, it gets more complicated when you think about the light speed for the person on the rocket ship relative to the person who's standing still watching the rocket ship. In that case, the light beam travels farther from the perspective of the person on the ground on the rocket ship. Let me repeat that. The light beam on the rocket ship, that is, the light beam that reaches the rocket ship, travels longer from the perspective of the person standing still than it does from the perspective of the person on the rocket ship. And indeed, it does travel farther. And yet, the light beam reaches the person on the rocket ship at one single rate of speed. And yet, both the person on the ground and the person in the rocket ship are correct in their measurements. Think about that. If you look at the person in the rocket ship from the perspective of the person standing still, the light beam is going to have to travel farther to reach the person in the rocket ship than it seems to be to the person on the rocket ship. In fact, it's not just seeming to be. It's, it is the fact that the light beam has to travel farther with respect to the observation of the person on the ground than with respect to the person 
who is riding the rocket ship. And you can see this if you were on the rocket ship and you shone a beam of light below the rocket ship, it would shine down and bounce back in a straight line. Remember, that's the effect. Same effect with bouncing a ball. The light beam will go directly down and directly back in a straight line. Because the people on the ship are like standing still from their own point of view. However, to the person on the ground, the light beam is not going straight down. The light beam has to angle because the rocket ship is in motion. And by the time the light beam returns to the rocket ship, the rocket ship has moved some distance forward. So the light beam has actually traveled farther on the rocket ship from the standpoint of the person on the ground than it does from the standpoint of the person in the rocket ship. Now, how can that be? How can a light beam travel the same distance at the same speed and cover more ground even though we know that the speed of light is a constant at 186,000 miles per second. So how can it travel at the same speed and at the same time, which we know light always does, and yet cover more ground in the case of the person on the rocket ship than the person standing still? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the answer is it actually doesn't take the same time. In other words, time slows down for the person on the rocket ship and not for the person on the ground. Because something has to give. Something has to make up for this oddity that you have two light beams, one is longer than the other, but the speed of light takes the same time for both. It can't take the same time. So time is what has to give. And time, therefore, is a variable quantity unlike the speed of light, which is a constant. And so a person who goes off into outer space at a speed approaching the speed of light would spend, say, a month out there relative to the people on the Earth. But by the time the uh, spacecraft returned to Earth, even though only a month had taken place on the spacecraft, several decades had passed on Earth so it would be possible, theoretically, using this theory for a spacecraft to actually travel into the future. Now, we'll never probably ever get to a point where we can approach the speed of light with any object. But it, even at small rates of speed, you do have a difference in the rate at which time passes for people in a rocket ship as opposed to people left behind on Earth. It's a measurable quantity, and it proves that Einstein's theory is correct. Now, what is the political significance of all of this? Well, the political significance is that it shatters Isaac Newton's certainty principle that everything has to act the same. The time is an absolute quantity. That is, that all laws have to operate the same way under all conditions. Einstein's theory shows, no, they do not operate the same way in all conditions. They are relative to the position of the observer. 
And so this contributes to what we've already seen with Freud and Madame Curie and the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. It's an irrational idea that just happens to be true. And so Europeans were beginning to question old truths and wonder if there were any truths at all in the years running up to the First World War that would shatter all hope of optimism for decades to come. 